0: BINA Chapter 7. Do not expect too much of the end of the world. Stanislav J. Letts, Aphorizmi, Fraski, Krakow, Vidovnitsvo Literatsky, 1977. Misli Nyuczesana. To enter a university a year or two after 1968 was like being admitted to the Academy de Saint-Cyr in 1793. You felt your birth date was wrong. Jacopo Belbo, who was almost fifteen years older than I, later convinced me that every generation feels this way. You are always born under the wrong sign, and to live in this world properly you have to rewrite your own horoscope day by day. I believe that what we become depends on what our fathers teach us at odd moments when they aren't trying to teach us. We are formed by little scraps of wisdom." When I was ten, I asked my parents to subscribe to a weekly magazine that was publishing comic strip versions of the great classics of literature. My father, not because he was stingy, but because he was suspicious of comic strips, tried to beg off. The purpose of this magazine, I pontificated, quoting the ad, is to educate the reader in an entertaining way. The purpose of your magazine, my father replied without looking up from his paper, is the purpose of every magazine, to sell as many copies as it can." That day I began to be incredulous, or rather I regretted having been credulous. I regretted having allowed myself to be borne away by a passion of the mind. Such is credulity. Not that the incredulous person doesn't believe in anything, it's just that he doesn't believe in everything, or he believes in one thing at a time. He believes a second thing only if it somehow follows from the first thing. He is nearsighted and methodical, avoiding wide horizons. If two things don't fit, but you believe both of them, thinking that somewhere hidden there must be a third thing that connects them, that's credulity. Incredulity doesn't kill curiosity, it encourages it. Though distrustful of logical chains of ideas, I love the polyphony of ideas. As long as you don't believe in them, the collision of two ideas, both false, can create a pleasing interval, a kind of diabolus in musica, I had no respect for some ideas people were willing to stake their lives on, but two or three ideas that I did not respect might still make a nice melody, or have a good beat, and if it was jazz, all the better. "'You live on the surface,' Leah told me years later. "'You sometimes seem profound, but it's only because you piece a lot of surfaces together to create the impression of depth, solidity. That solidity would collapse if you tried to stand it up.' "'Are you saying I'm superficial?' "'No.' she answered. "'What others call profundity is only a tesseract, a four-dimensional cube. You walk in one side and come out the other, and you're in their universe, which can't coexist with yours. Leah, now that they have walked into the cube and invaded our world, I don't know if I'll ever see you again. And it was all my fault. I made them believe there was a depth, a depth that they, in their weakness, desired.' "'What did I really think fifteen years ago?' a non-believer, I felt guilty in the midst of all those believers. And since it seemed to me that they were in the right, I decided to believe, as you might decide to take an aspirin. It can't hurt, and you might get better. So there I was, in the midst of the revolution, or at least in the most stupendous imitation of it, seeking an honorable faith. It was honorable, for example, to take part in rallies and marches. I chanted, "'Fascist scum, your time has come!' with everybody else." I never threw paving stones or ball bearings out of fear that others might do unto me as I did unto them, but I experienced a kind of moral excitement escaping along narrow downtown streets when the police charged. I would come home with the sense of having performed a duty. In the meetings I remained untouched by the disagreements that divided the various groups. I always had the feeling that if you substituted the right phrase for another phrase you could move from group to group. I amused myself by finding the right phrases. I modulated. At the demonstrations I would fall in behind one banner or another, drawn by a girl who had aroused my interest, so I came to the conclusion that for many of my companions political activism was a sexual thing. But sex was a passion. I wanted only curiosity. True, in the course of my reading about the Templars and the various atrocities attributed to them, I had come across Carpocrates' assertion that to escape the tyranny of the angels, the masters of the cosmos, every possible ignominy should be perpetrated that you should discharge all debts to the world and to your own body, for only by committing every act can the soul be freed of its passions and returned to its original purity. When we were inventing the plan, I found that many addicts of the occult pursued that path in their search for enlightenment. According to his biographers, Alistair Crowley, who has been called the most perverted man of all time and who did everything that could be done with his worshippers, both men and women, chose only the ugliest partners of either sex. I have the nagging suspicion, however, that his love-making was incomplete. There must be a connection between the lust for power and impotentia coeundi. I liked Marx. I was sure that he and his Jenny had made love merrily. You can feel it in the easy pace of his prose and in his humor." On the other hand, I remember remarking one day in the corridors of the university that if you screwed Krupskaya all the time, you'd end up writing a lousy book like Materialism and Imperial Criticism. I was almost clubbed. A tall guy with a tartar mustache said I was a fascist. I'll never forget him. He later shaved his head and now belongs to a commune where they weave baskets. I evoked the mood of those days only to reconstruct my state of mind when I began to visit Caramont Press and made friends with Jacopo Belbo. I was the type who looked at discussions of what is truth only with a view toward correcting the manuscript. If you were to quote, I am that I am, for example, I thought that the fundamental problem was where to put the comma, inside the quotation marks, or outside. That's why I wisely chose philology. The University of Milan was the place to be in those years. Everywhere else in the country students were taking over classrooms and telling the professors they should teach only proletarian sciences. But at our university, except for a few incidents, a constitutional pact, or rather a territorial compromise, held. The revolution occupied the grounds, the auditorium, and the main halls, while traditional culture, protected, withdrew to the inner corridors and upper floors, where it went on talking as if nothing had happened. The result was that I could spend the morning debating proletarian matters downstairs and the afternoon pursuing aristocratic knowledge upstairs. In these two parallel universes I lived comfortably and felt no contradiction. I firmly believed that an egalitarian society was dawning, but I also thought that the trains, for example, in this better society ought to run better, and the militants around me were not learning how to shovel coal into the furnace, work the switches, or draw up timetables. Somebody had to be ready to operate the trains. I felt like a kind of Stalin laughing to himself somewhat remorsefully and thinking, Go ahead, you poor Bolsheviks. I'm going to study in this seminary in Tiflis, and we'll see which one of us gets to draft the five-year plan. Perhaps because I was always surrounded by enthusiasm in the morning, in the afternoon I came to equate learning with distrust. I wanted to study something that confined itself to what could be documented, as opposed to what was merely a matter of opinion. For no particular reason I signed up for a seminar on medieval history and chose, for my thesis subject the trial of the Templars. It was a story that fascinated me from the moment I first glanced at the documents. At that time, when we were struggling against those in power, I was wholeheartedly outraged by the trial in which the Templars, through evidence it would be generous to call circumstantial, were sentenced to the stake. Then I quickly learned that for centuries after their execution, countless lovers of the occult persisted in looking for them, seeking everywhere, without ever producing proof of their existence." This visionary excess offended my incredulity, and I resolved to waste no more time on these hunters of secrets. I would stick to primary sources. The Templars were monastic knights. Their order was recognized by the Church. If the Church dissolved that order, as in fact it had seven centuries ago, then the Templars could no longer exist. Therefore, if they existed, they weren't Templars. I drew up a bibliography of more than a hundred books, but in the end read only about thirty of them. It was through the Templars that I first got to know Jacopo Belbo at Pilates toward the end of 72, when I was at work on my thesis.